This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. We are still stuck on the East Coast. I apologize for that, but that's what happens when you have such small states smashed together in one area. On my side of the country, you have to drive for hours in any direction before you hit a state line. In the Northeast, you can lean out your bedroom window and spit across a state line. Today's episode is about a very historical state where many atrocities have occurred throughout time. Massachusetts became a state in 1788 and was the sixth to enter the Union. This is where the Salem Witch Trials took place, so I'm sure I'll dig up a case of that to put in here. Last week's episode bothered the hell out of me, so even colonial era crimes will be a good palate cleanser. Might even have some treason in this one too, considering that Massachusetts was crucial in the US becoming independent from Great Britain. Their history with the death penalty is what you'd expect. It goes all the way back to 1630. This list is insanely long. Some crimes, aside from the usual ones punishable by death in Massachusetts included adultery, bestiality, and concealing birth. There are a few on this list for piracy and desertion, and a lot for burglary. Massachusetts has kind of a weird law in regards to the death penalty. It was reinstated in 1982 for first-degree murder, but during a case in 1984, the law that enabled capital punishment was ruled unconstitutional. But why? Because it was not applied fairly. Only defendants who went to trial were eligible for the death penalty. If you pled guilty, you walked away with your life, which at face value seems fair, but any innocent person fighting their case would be eligible for the death penalty if they were found guilty. It was officially abolished in October of 1984. This one is going to have a variety of weird shit and nasty crimes, much different than last week's urban crime spree. So grab a teacup and some baked beans. We're headed to the Bay State. Massachusetts State Trooper George Hanna was a Navy veteran who had served on the police force for nine years. He was a husband and father of three. On February 26, 1983, he was out doing his job when he came upon a group of three men and pulled them over for a routine traffic stop. These men were out looking for a business to rob and just happened to be caught before they could find one. While searching the first man, George found a weapon. At this moment, the second man pulled out a 22 caliber handgun and shot the officer. Article 26 of the Declaration of Rights of the Massachusetts Constitution states, No magistrate or court of law shall demand excessive bail or sureties, impose excessive fines, or inflict cruel or unusual punishments. This article was amended on November 2, 1982, and two more sentences were added. No provision of the Constitution, however, shall be construed as prohibiting the imposition of the punishment of death. The General Court may, for the purpose of protecting the general welfare of the citizens, 
authorize the imposition of the punishment of death by the courts of law having jurisdiction of crimes subject to the punishment of death. God damn, that was a mouthful. I've noticed that legalese is basically just run-on sentences with very little punctuation aside from oddly placed commas. This was the amendment that said capital punishment was allowed in cases of first-degree murder. It went into effect on January 1st, 1983, a little less than two months before the murder of Trooper George Hanna. Sifting through these court rulings to find details on this case is giving me a headache. I don't know exactly what led the police to find the identities of the killers, but they were identified as Abimael Colon Cruz, Jose Colon, and Miguel Rosado. They were to be tried separately, but before this could occur, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts moved to report two questions of law to the appeals court. Whether the death penalty statute was in compliance with the U.S. Constitution, and whether it was in compliance with the Massachusetts Constitution. Before any evidence was heard in the murder trial, it had to be determined if the accused could be given the death penalty if found guilty. I'll spare you the unending pages of legalese that you don't pay me enough to translate. The majority of the judges in the appeals court found that the Massachusetts law on capital punishment was not constitutional, as it violated the accused person's right against self-incrimination and a trial by jury. So the three men charged with killing Trooper George Hanna wouldn't be facing a death sentence, but all of them were tried and convicted and sentenced to life without parole. Abimael Cologne Cruz is not currently in the Massachusetts system. Maybe he died, maybe he was paroled. I honestly have no idea. This case has been very difficult to research. Jose Anibal Colon is still currently housed in a Massachusetts prison. Miguel Angel Rosado sought a new trial in 2005, but I'm assuming his sentence was upheld as he's still sitting in a Massachusetts prison. Sorry there aren't a lot of details on this one. I wanted to include it anyway because of the legal mess that came with it. Organized crime isn't something I've talked much about in this podcast. When I hear that term, I think of guys in nice suits and dumb 1940s hats smoking cigars and playing cards. What I don't think of is a 19-year-old U.S. Marine holding up an illegal dice game in a summer camp. On August 3, 1945, Robert Tex Williams lured a group of three men to a summer camp in New Hampshire with the promise of being able to steal $10,000. The plan was to rob the dice players at gunpoint. The men executed their plan and managed to walk away with a few hundred dollars. The men, Philip Bellino, Edward Gertson, and Charles Mantia, were absolutely enraged at Tex. They expected more money. They also feared that Tex would snitch on them and they'd end up in prison for the robbery. On August 7, 1945, all four men shared a taxi and ended up at an isolated location near Boston, close to the shore. Bellino, Gertson, and Tex got out of the cab and went for a walk. Charles Mantia waited with the driver. At this point, he had to know something was up. 
Topolino and Gerdson came back without text and said that the young man had left to go spend the night with his girlfriend. The red flags really aren't getting any bigger, but alright. Tex's body was found soon after this. He'd been shot in the back of the head. Realizing that the co-conspirators of the summer camp robbery were probably responsible, Charles led police right to them. Their cab driver also became a witness for the prosecution. Both men were found guilty of first-degree murder on June 18, 1946. It was later argued that their rights had been violated after two of the original 14 jurors were dismissed before the final verdict, but this had no effect on their case in the end. Both men were sentenced to death. Philip Bellino and Edward Gertson were executed by electrocution on May 9, 1947. They would be the last two men to meet their end by the hands of the state of Massachusetts. Around the time they were executed, a new Mercy Bill was being discussed in the Massachusetts General Court, but the governor vetoed it. These two men showed 19-year-old Tex no mercy when they shot him in the back of the head and left him on the beach. Why should they be given any? Probably due to the time, there is no information on their last words or last meals. Long before electric chairs and lethal injections, condemned prisoners were put to death by hanging. If you remember the Delaware episode, you'll know that Billy Bailey was the last person to meet his end by a rope in 1996. That was his choice. People in the 1800s didn't have much of a choice. I mean, beheading was probably not considered humane for the time. There was no electricity, and a firing squad with old guns just sounds terrible. Crime isn't a plague of the modern era. It's been a cancer on society probably as long as societies have existed. Our next case takes us back to the year 1801, to a Massachusetts town called Dedham. Jason Fairbanks was born and raised in a prominent family in Dedham. The boy had been born on September 25, 1780 with a lame arm. His parents were Ebenezer and Prudence Farrington Fairbanks. Those are some colonial era names if I've ever heard any. How the fuck did Ebenezer and Prudence come up with Jason? That's like an early 2000s MySpace guy with white sunglasses and spiky hair name. The property the family lived in was called, you guessed it, the Fairbanks House. This house is the oldest house in the country. I looked it up and this is legit. It's still standing. One other odd historical thing that ties into this family is that Jason's sixth cousin once removed, a man by the name of Charles Fairbanks, was Teddy Roosevelt's vice president. There's a lot going on in this one. Fairbanks was interested in a woman named Elizabeth Fales. They'd been courting, as it was called, for a long time, but she had not accepted his marriage proposal. Shit or get off the pot. This is the 1800s. You have a life expectancy of about 45. If you ain't gonna marry him, move on. I'm obviously kidding. That joke was especially dark, considering the events that took place. But if you don't like dark jokes, what the fuck are you doing here? I warned you. It's your own fault if you stayed to listen. On May 18, 
1801, Fairbanks decided he was going to get an answer out of Elizabeth one way or another. He met with her in a birch grove somewhere in Dedham. Unbeknownst to Elizabeth, Fairbanks had told his friend Reuben Farrington that he intended to violate her chastity or carry her to a nearby town because he had waited long enough. Sometime after this meeting took place, Fairbanks showed up at the Fales' home with a knife in his hand. He was covered in blood. He explained to Elizabeth's parents that their daughter had committed suicide and that he'd tried to follow suit but had been unsuccessful. Elizabeth had been found with 11 stab wounds, including one in her back and a gaping wound to her throat. I don't know about any of you, but if the day ever comes that I self-delete, I most definitely won't be stabbing myself in the back. That seems complicated. So obviously, if Elizabeth didn't kill herself, suspicion would fall onto her blood-soaked boyfriend. But he wasn't in any shape to be arrested. He was instead taken into the Fales household, because that makes so much sense, and given medical treatment. Elizabeth's funeral was held on May 20th. About six weeks later, on August 8th, Fairbanks was indicted as an accessory to Elizabeth's death and thrown in jail. Two prominent Federalist lawyers, Harrison Otis and John Lowell Jr., came to his defense. Not sure what defense they could have offered, but regardless, it didn't do anything for him. He was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. The Shawshank Redemption is one of my favorite movies. I'm also a fan of Family Guy's rendition of it. Or am I being obtuse? No, now you're being acute. Anyway, Fairbanks wasn't meeting his maker without at least trying to fight. With the help of his cousin, nephew, brother, and a friend, Fairbanks managed to escape from jail. Probably not as difficult as it sounds in the 1800s. A bounty of $1,000 was placed on his head and newspapers printed headlines about him. The group made it all the way up to what is now Whitehall, New York, where they stopped for some food. This is where they fucked up. They were almost to Canada, which was their destination, but were captured just south of the border. Fairbanks was brought back to Massachusetts and placed into the jail in Boston since it had been proven that he could escape the one in Dedham. Jason Fairbanks was executed by hanging on September 10, 1801. This event was huge. In addition to the 10,000 or so people who wanted to witness the execution, two army cavalry companies and a volunteer militia came to make sure that he couldn't escape a second time. It could be argued that the death penalty wasn't really a punishment for Fairbanks. He had, after all, attempted suicide after he murdered Elizabeth. If done right, Hanging is a lot quicker and less painful than anything that could be done with a knife. As you probably guessed, there is no information on the last words or last mail of Jason Fairbanks. I think I'm just going to assume that everyone in this episode ate clam chowder before they were executed. It's only fitting. If memory serves me correctly, the last federal case I covered was in Iowa, which wasn't that long ago, but Massachusetts has one that I'm sure you're all familiar with. It was insane. Terrorism isn't something I've talked a lot about yet. I plan to do an entire episode on mass murders at some point. Just 
Gotta find space for it in the schedule. I'm a busy woman, you know. Especially right now. Work is, I'm assuming, totally slammed by the time this episode comes out. Dagestan is a republic of Russia located in the south. It borders Georgia and Azerbaijan. I didn't do much research on this place, but it strikes me as one of those chunks of territory that Russia probably annexed from somebody. The Caucasus region of the world is very interesting. Georgia, believe it or not, is known for their wine. I'd definitely jump off the wagon for some Georgian wine. Many different ethnic groups make up this region. In 1986, a Chechen man named Anzor and an Avar woman named Zubaydat would get married in the Kalmyk Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. I apologize if I fuck these pronunciations up. They are uh, d difficult for my Utah American ass. <laughs> the very next day, their son, Tamerlan, was born. About seven years later, in July of 1993, they'd welcome a little boy named Jokar into the world. The couple also had two daughters and raised their family in the Muslim faith. Anzor was later described as being a traditional Muslim who objected to extremism. Jokar Sarnaev was just eight years old when the family moved to Dagestan. In 2002, he and his parents came to the U.S. on a tourist visa. Anzor managed to score asylum, citing his fears of being persecuted for his ties to Chechnya. Tamerlan Sarnaev had been left in the care of his uncle in Kyrgyzstan during this time and came to the U.S. two years later. Eventually, all four children were given derivative asylum status, which basically means that they were grandfathered into it because their father had been given asylum. They all settled in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Things weren't easy for the Tsarnaev family, though. Their first 10 years in the States were spent on welfare benefits. Anzor worked as a backyard mechanic, and Zubaydat worked as a cosmetologist for a while, until she was fired for refusing to serve male clients. Must be a religious thing. Then again, most things are religious things. In 2007, the family was granted permanent residence in the U.S. This is also known as a green card. You hear people say that getting asylum or any kind of residence in the U.S. is difficult, but, uh... I've looked into getting asylum in other countries, for reasons. All of the other countries. It ain't a walk in the park, and you have to have money in the bank to even think about it. Jokar Tsarnaev would become a citizen while he attended college. His mother also became a citizen at some point, but it is unknown if his father followed suit. Tamerlan, his older brother, tried to get citizenship, but this was held up by a government investigation. The younger Tsarnaev was described as a puppy dog, following his older brother around. While attending high school, he was an avid wrestler and sometimes worked as a lifeguard at Harvard. This kid really seems like he's got a shot at the American dream, doesn't he? After high school, he enrolled at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. He had previously contacted a professor here who taught Chechen history and expressed interest in it. Jokar was described by his friends as normal and popular. He smoked a little weed and listened to rap. Nothing about him ever indicated to his friends that he had dark intentions, but everybody has two sides the one they show to those close to them, and the one they show to the internet. Uh, what happened is a terrible thing, but I know that my kids have nothing to do with this. I know it. 
I am mother. I have. I, I you know, I'm. I know my kids. I know my kids. I really, my kids would never get involved into anything like that. Tsarnaev had a profile on the Russian social network VK, where he described his worldview as Islam and his priorities as career and money. He posted links to videos of the Syrian civil war, as well as Islamic websites and pages advocating for Chechnya's independence. On its face, this really doesn't seem all that bad. Knowing what we know now, it's a glaring red flag, but being involved in religion and politics isn't something to be concerned about, unless you smash the two together. Then it becomes a problem. Separation of church and state exists for a reason. Tsarnaev was also on Twitter, but that feed contained mostly talk of sports and food. On the day of the 2012 Boston Marathon, he posted a Quran verse that is commonly used by those with a more radical view on Islam. Foreshadowing, perhaps? Who knows? I mentioned earlier that this guy was on the path to the American dream, but that didn't last. Maybe his political and religious agendas clouded his mind, or maybe he was just lazy, but he went on to struggle in college. His GPA fell to 1.09, and he received seven failing grades over three semesters. This was on top of a $20,000 debt he owed to the university. The young man was selling weed to make money, and his license plate information was checked when police saw his car at a party in Arlington Heights. Jokar would later say in an interview that he and his brother Tamerlan were angry about the U.S. getting involved in wars in the Middle East. I'm pretty angry about that too, but for entirely different reasons. He was upset that Muslims were being killed. I'm upset that my tax dollars have to go to funding this shit. It's bad enough that the government steals a quarter of every paycheck, but to use it to fund wars is just adding injury to insult. On April 15, 2013, Jokar was captured on CCTV near the finish line of the Boston Marathon with a duffel bag. This was later found to contain a pressure cooker bomb. He placed the bag on the ground inconspicuously, watched a few people cross the finish line, and then took off running to get away from the bomb before it exploded. This explosion obviously scared the hell out of everyone around, but it wasn't over yet. There was a second pressure cooker bomb. After this one was detonated, both of the Tsarnaev brothers were captured on video fleeing the scene with the rest of the crowd. After the bombings, Jokar continued tweeting, as most sane people do during a crisis. We aren't all addicted to social media, not at all. He sent out a tweet telling the people of Boston to stay safe, which is just nauseating looking at it through my 2023 lens. He returned to his university after the tragic events of April 15th and remained there for three days. It was at this point the FBI released pictures of he and his brother from the marathon. On April 18, 2013, the Tsarnaev brothers tried to steal a gun from a police officer at MIT. Officer Sean Collier was murdered during this altercation. The brothers then went to Alston, which is a neighborhood in Boston. While here, they robbed and carjacked someone and took him as a hostage. The man managed to escape after the brothers became distracted while putting gas in the car. He made his way to a different gas station and called the cops who were able to track the car using the man's cell phone and the anti-theft tracking device in the SUV. 
The SUV, along with a Honda the brothers were driving, was located in the early hours of April 19th. After they were found, the brothers started a shootout with the police in Watertown. They went so far as to throw bombs at the cops. What the fuck? That is some seriously twisted dedication. Jokar was injured during the shootout, and Tamerlan was hit multiple times before being arrested. Believe it or not, Jokar was able to escape in the stolen SUV. Tamerlan Anzorovich Tsarnaev died in the hospital on April 19, 2013. His cause of death was a combination of gunshot wounds, cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, and blunt trauma. As his younger brother was fleeing the shootout, he had hit Tamerlan with the SUV and dragged him about 30 feet. Pretty fucked up thing to do, but I guess Jokar's loyalty was to himself above all else. The younger Tsarnaev brother only drove the stolen car about a half mile before abandoning it and fleeing on foot. An enormous manhunt ensued, involving thousands of police officers and the FBI. No warrants were issued to search nearby houses, but residents were told that they had to comply with the authorities searching their properties. Let me go get my tinfoil hat real quick, because I apparently need it for this part of the episode. Tsarnaev's uncle Ruslan, who lived in Maryland, went on the news to plead with his nephew to turn himself in. He even said that Tsarnaev had shamed the family and the Chechen ethnicity. That's a fucking understatement. Terroristic bullshit aside, this dude killed his own brother to save his ass. That's about as shameful as it gets. Tsarnaev was found later, on April 19th, hiding in someone's boat in Watertown. The man who owned the boat had been following the shelter-in-place order, but noticed that the cover on his boat had been disturbed, and went outside to check it out after the order was lifted. After seeing a bloody Tsarnaev inside, he went back in his house and called 911. The police were able to verify that there was a man inside the boat by using thermal imaging, and after seeing Tsarnaev push up on the tarp, they opened fire on him. This continued until the superintendent on scene told them to stop. Tsarnaev was unarmed when he was finally arrested. He was taken to a hospital in Boston and treated for gunshot wounds to his ear, neck, and thigh. His medical treatment included a tracheotomy, which made it impossible for him to speak. If you need a little break from all this carnage, look up Dennis Leary's bit about tracheotomies. That shit has me pissing my pants laughing every time I hear it. Because of his inability to speak, Tsarnaev had to respond to the counterterrorism group's questions by writing in a notebook. The attack was, obviously, religiously motivated. I don't say that to be an Islamophobe or whatever other bullshit you're going to try to throw on me because facts are racist. There was no evidence that this attack was tied to any Islamic terror organization, but Tsarnaev made it clear that he and his brother were motivated by their extremist beliefs. They were also angry about the U.S. wars with Afghanistan and Iraq. Tsarnaev admitted that their next target was going to be Times Square. This plan was formed randomly during the carjacking on April 18th, and would have been carried out that day had they not been forced to stop for gas. Investigators found that Tsarnaev wasn't involved in any jihadist activities and hadn't been fully radicalized like his older brother had. Law enforcement officials went on to tell the Wall Street Journal 
that Tsarnaev better fit the psychological profile of an ordinary criminal than a committed terrorist. Or, as he was described before, a puppy following his older brother. Tsarnaev was charged with using and conspiring to use a weapon of mass destruction resulting in death and malicious destruction of properties resulting in death in connection with the Boston Marathon attacks. After he was read his Miranda rights, he stopped talking and refused to cooperate with the investigation. These two charges paled in comparison to the 30 that he'd be indicted on by a federal grand jury. Some of these were death penalty eligible. Like I've said a million times before, the state you commit your crimes in might not be able to kill you, but the federal government still can. Tsarnaev tried for a plea deal, but the prosecution refused to take the death penalty off the table and forced the case to go to trial. The only real defense that could be presented was that Tamerlan Tsarnaev was the mastermind, and that Jokar was just following what his brother wanted. This strategy didn't work, and the 20-year-old man was found guilty on all charges. Two years later, in June of 2015, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection for six of his 17 capital counts. This sentence would be overturned on July 30th, 2020. Yep, you heard me correctly. Tsarnaev wouldn't be getting a death sentence, but he wouldn't be getting out of prison either. He had been given numerous life sentences. The only reason his life had been spared was because he argued that he should have been given a change of venue. There was no chance of a fair trial in Boston. Or in Massachusetts. Hell, probably not anywhere in the Northeast. Despite this, his convictions were upheld, and the story wasn't going to end here. In October of 2021, the Department of Justice presented arguments to the Supreme Court that favored reinstating Tsarnaev's death sentence. And to my surprise, the Supreme Court agreed. On March 4, 2022, in a 6-3 decision, the death sentence was reinstated. Jokar Anzorovich Sarnayev still sits on death row in a federal prison in Colorado. As of January 10, 2023, Sarnayev is still trying to appeal this decision on the grounds that jurors had lied about sharing information about the case on social media. His attorneys say that several jurors participated in discussions showing a strong bias against Tsarnaev. This should have disqualified the jurors from serving. I kinda get that, I, d I do. But I'm also against retrying a man that is clearly guilty of at least the murder of his brother and wasting taxpayer dollars to give him another death sentence. It seems like theater to me. In June of 2016, Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri issued a threat to the U.S. and warned of the gravest consequences if Tsarnaev came to any harm. Nothing happened, though, as the CIA took out al-Zawahiri in 2022. In case you haven't noticed, Massachusetts doesn't have a whole lot of cases with last meals, probably due to the fact that they haven't had the death penalty since the 40s. I'll be blunt with you, I spent an extensive amount of time trying to find a case with a last meal, but the one interstate killer I found with Massachusetts victims either didn't get a last meal or it's just not listed anywhere. 
I also wanted to cover him because he was an 80s serial killer, but I found a 60s serial killer for you instead, and god damn was this guy nasty. There's not a whole lot available on the early life of Tony Costa, other than his father died in World War II. By the age of seven, the boy was seeing a man entering his room at night. He'd later identify this man in a photo. It was his father. Costa clearly had something going on in his head that would later show itself in his depraved actions. At the age of 16, he broke into an apartment in Somerville, Massachusetts, and leaned over a teenage girl's bed to watch her sleep. Her screams eventually scared him away, but he returned three days later and tried to physically drag her out of her apartment building. Neighbors intervened, and he was unsuccessful. As an adult, Costa tried to get his shit together. He was convicted of assault and burglary in early 1962 and given a one-year suspended sentence and three years probation. A little over a year later, the young man got married and managed to have three children with his wife before his drug problem fucked up their relationship. Costa began behaving bizarrely. Drugs will do that. One odd thing that Costa did, which may not seem that strange due to the time period, was bring home two hippie girls. This is the 60s. He claimed he was going to drive them from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania and then continue on to California on his own. In a later police interview, he said that he had taken the girls to Hayward, California, but they never made it. Costa somehow managed to get from California all the way back home to Massachusetts in 10 days. I've looked to see how many days it takes to drive from Utah to an unspecified location in the Northeast, and it's about three and a half days straight through. So yeah, maybe he had time to drive all the way to California and back, especially if he was methed up, which I have to assume he was. In August of 1967, Costa went hiking with a female acquaintance and shot her with an arrow. He later apologized for this accident. By January of 1968, his marriage was a fucking disaster. His solution to this was to drive to California and spend some time in San Francisco. He hooked up with a woman named Barbara Spaulding, who would disappear on the very same day that Costa left to go back to Massachusetts. She left her child with some family members and took off, never to be seen again. Ah, the 60s. Costa arrived back on the East Coast alone and immediately went to work, burglarizing a doctor's office. He made off with drugs and surgical equipment that was valued at almost $5,000. Just one week later, on June 14, 1968, an 18-year-old woman named Sydney Monzon vanished from her house in Provincetown. Costa was officially divorced in August of 1968, and a woman named Susan Perry moved in with him. This relationship lasted about a week before Susan disappeared. When asked about it by his friends, Costa said that she had gone to Mexico. In September, Costa was arrested for driving on a suspended license. This led to him being held in custody for two months on a charge of failing to support his wife and kids. Ex-wife, if I'm not mistaken. While he may be on the hook for those crotch goblins he fathered, he shouldn't be expected to take care of his ex. Although this was a different time. 
Maybe his wife couldn't get a job because the feminist cancer hadn't spread around the U.S. yet? I don't know. After Costa was released on November 8th, he started spending time and drugs with a woman named Christine Gallant. This wouldn't last long at all, though. Christine was found dead in her bathtub on November 23rd, having drowned after overdosing on barbiturates. Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki disappeared from Provincetown on January 24, 1969. Two weeks later, the mutilated body of a woman was found near a cemetery. She'd been cut into eight pieces and was severely decomposed by the time she was found. This young woman would be identified as Susan Perry. Only a few months later, three more bodies would be found buried together a mile away from the first gravesite. Marianne and Patricia had both been shot in the head. Costa later claimed that Sydney's cause of death was a drug overdose. The hearts of all three women had been removed. Investigators also found bite marks on the remains and signs of necrophilia. Costa was found in possession of Patricia and Marianne's car. He showed the police a suspicious-looking bill of sale and claimed he'd bought the car before the women went to Canada. Costa was arrested on suspicion of murder after the police learned that the final resting place of the victims they'd found was Costa's private garden where he grew weed and stashed his drugs. While in custody, he changed his story several times and implicated several different innocent people in the murders. He also failed a few polygraph examinations, which you should never take. Ever. They're not admissible in court for a reason. Costa was evaluated and determined to have a schizoid personality. Another evaluation a few months later led the psychiatrist to believe that Costa was a modern-day Marquis de Sade and a sexually dangerous man who was capable of murder. You don't say. Those two descriptions are one and the same. Costa finally confessed to Marianne's murder on July 12, 1969. His trial began on May 6th of the following year and ended with four murder convictions. This case is gross. And if you ask me, this is one of those times that the death penalty is definitely warranted. What he did to those women was barbaric. But I guess the state of Massachusetts thinks the death penalty is more barbaric than murdering women and cutting their hearts out before having sex with their corpses. It is a strange world we live in. Costa got a life sentence and spent his time in prison reading up on ritual magic and the occult. He even had a copy of a book that I currently have a copy of. Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. I was an edgy teenager once, before I abandoned religion altogether. We've been over this. Have you watched my Rumble videos and seen what I look like? Don't act like you're surprised. I have a collection of books that would seem unsavory to you normies. I'm a strange creature, and here you are listening to my murder podcast. The fuck is wrong with you? Anton Charles Costa executed himself by hanging on May 12, 1974. He was found with a leather belt around his neck. This man was definitely mentally ill. He had claimed that the murder of Marianne had happened after he and a friend named Carl had been taking LSD and allotted with Barbara and Marianne. Carl then apparently shot the women, and Costa finished Marianne off with a knife because the gunshot hadn't killed her. 
Now, I've never had 1960s acid, so I guess I don't know how strong it was, but I've taken my fair share of hallucinogens, and not once have I thought shooting someone was a good idea. I apologize that there is no information on his last words or last meal. I'm gonna assume clam chowder and baked beans. Holy hell, that one was all over the place. And I didn't bore you with colonial-era witchcraft cases. Just some terrible people doing terrible things. And me mispronouncing names. Massachusetts is full of history and nonsense, that's for sure. As of the time of writing, I have a video up on Rumble where I talk about a current Massachusetts case where the killer is still on the run. I'm hoping they've caught him by now, but even if they did, he won't be getting the needle. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. Share it on your internet. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. Rumble is home to all my video content, but you can also find me on Odyssey and most podcast apps. I'll be back next week to cover another blue state with one of the worst cities in this country. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.